We call you leader because you're the one who's willing to take the risk of trust first. I, it drives me nuts when mm. leaders say, you have to earn my trust. No, it's the complete opposite. The people are not required to trust you. You are required to trust them, and you must earn their trust. And, um, and when we operate in that way, the result is teamwork that is, is so powerful, so compelling. It's where we literally love our teammates. Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations about what we're learning, about the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm Chris Congdon. I'm your host today, and I'm the editor of 360 Magazine. Actually, I'm a guest host because I am really excited and asked for the opportunity to share with you this conversation we're having with Simon Sinek. Simon is my favorite author, and he's written a number of best-selling books, including Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last. His TED Talk about Starts With Why has been watched millions of times, probably a couple million by me. Today, he's going to give us a glimpse into his newest book called The Infinite Game. In it, he flips a lot of conventional notions in business, like the idea that leadership is actually a lifestyle and that we should really think about competitors more as rivals or players in this infinite game. We're going to dive into our conversation with Simon in a second. But before we do that, I want to ask you to rate or review this podcast because that's going to help other people find it. And we really appreciate you doing that. Now, back to Simon. He is a self-described optimist and idealist, and he certainly challenges the status quo. So I had a chance to catch up with him on the phone in New York. So good morning, Simon, and welcome to 360 Real Time. Thanks for having me. I have a true confession that I have to start out with. So I am not the regular host, but I get to do the podcast on occasion, particularly when there's something that I'm really excited about. And so when I heard that we were going to have a chance to talk with you, I said, oh, can I do it? Can I please do it? And I'm excited because I want to start out talking a little bit about It Starts With Why. And I know that you have a new book coming out, and I really want to get to that too. But for some of the people who are listening, it may have been a while since they've read it. Um, it's become kind of a seminal book around here for a lot of us, this notion of starting with why. And so I actually wanted to ask you, like, why did you get to starting with why? Like, what caused that to happen for you? My story is very similar to a lot of people, which is I had a career and I enjoyed my career and I did well. Um, and then I fell out of love with what I was doing. And I couldn't really mm -hmm. understand it because I was doing the same thing that I was doing before but I didn't love it anymore. No, nothing had changed. And I was embarrassed by this because superficially my life was good. And so I didn't tell anybody because I felt I, felt I couldn't say it because, like I said, everything was good. <laughs> yeah. I sound like a whiny baby, like I didn't want to wake up and go to work every day. I talk to a lot of people who feel that way sometimes though, right? Yeah, and we keep it to ourselves for various reasons. And so I did as well, and the feelings got worse and worse and worse. I got to the point where I was really the closest I've ever come to probably depressed. I was paranoid. I just, I, I really hated work. And it wasn't until a friend of mine came to me and said, I'm worried about you. There's something different. There's something wrong. And I came clean. 
And um, mm-hmm. it was such a, a cathartic experience. All of that energy that I went into lying, hiding, and faking every day, pretending that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I actually felt, could now be completely redirected in actually finding a solution. And there was a, there was a confluence of events that happened, and I made this discovery that uh, you know it's based on the biology of human decision making. That every mm-hmm. single one of us needs to know what we do. We need to know how we do it. We also need to know why we do it. And I don't mean to make money that's a result, but this sort of purpose, cause, or belief that gets you out of bed in the morning. And I knew what I did, and I knew how I was different or better than my competition, but I couldn't tell you why. And I realized that was the missing piece, because you have to know all three. And so I became obsessed with it. I learned to find my why. More importantly, I learned to help others find theirs. And I did it for my friends. And my friends helped me. uh, My friends invited me to help their friends. So I would go give a talk in someone's living room and then help people find their why for 100 bucks on the side. And uh, it became the only thing I wanted to do. It became the only thing I wanted to talk about. And people just kept inviting me to come speak about it. And I just kept saying yes. And so my whole career really evolved rather than was a decision. The idea seems so kind of simple and elegant in its simplicity. But yet it, it's really hard. Why is that, do you think? Why is why so hard? It is elegant and it is simple. And the reason it's hard is not really a... It's, not a, it's a biological problem because the part of the brain that mm-hmm. controls our behavior and controls our feelings is not the same part of the brain that controls language and analytical thought. And so when we try and think about what it is, when we try and analyze ourselves, it's actually the wrong part of the brain. And, and so we struggle to put the sense of why into words because the part of the brain that controls inspiration doesn't control language. And mm-hmm. so we end up saying things like, I know all the data says I should do this, but it just doesn't feel right. We talk about our guts guiding us. We talk about following our intuition. You know, all of these sort of weird things to say about making decisions. It's actually that limbic part of the brain. And so it really takes another person to help you. It's damn near impossible to do by yourself. You don't have the kind of objectivity you need to find the patterns in your life that reveal your why. Um, I, I ask somebody to help me. And that's what I like to do for others. Uh, And I think the people who try and do it by themselves end up giving up. I think it's hard enough at an individual level. And then we talk about this a lot at an organizational level because, you know, the things that we do at work is all about helping organizations and helping the people within those organizations. And it's interesting that when we're talking to people about, like, how they want their organization to be, what they want, what kind of work they want to do, this notion of why at that organizational level, it it feels like it's even harder. Do you find that when you're working with clients? It's the same process. You're looking for patterns of behavior and you're looking for how the organization operates when it operates at its natural best, which is what the same is for a personal life. We don't always operate at our natural best, but to know what that thing is allows us to control for the conditions that we're more likely to operate at our natural best. And so one Mm -hmm. of the problems that organizations face when they go through these processes, and you know, I I think they, there's all kinds of people out there helping you find your purpose or your brand or your DNA, and they all have their own trademark language for the same thing. But very often it's a process of consensus. And very often it's about interviewing everybody in the organization so that everybody can have an input. And the problem is this is not a consensus thing that gets, it gets very diluted. In my experience, the two really best ways to do it are if there is a founder leader still alive, go to that person 
because the organization is in fact a representation of who they are. It was mm-hmm. born out of them and their personality. Virgin is Richard Branson. Apple is mm-hmm. Steve Jobs. Right. You know, Star Wars and Lucasfilm is George Lucas. They're inseparable. Their personalities are the same. The culture was formed around the person. If you know the person's individual why, the company is actually the exact same why. If you do not have a founder leader who's still available, what you do is you go to the zealots, the people who, even when the company has not really done right by them, for some reason, Mm -hmm. they're still emotionally connected and they would still never leave. They love this place for some weird reason. And they come, and I like to do it with a cross section. I like all job functions. I like all ranks. But I want the people who really love it here because that commonality of what they love is the why. And it's the same in our own personal lives. You know, your why is the value you have in the lives of your friends. So if I would interview Mm -hmm. all your friends, I would actually get the exact same answer because you feel something in their lives. It's the same thing here. You know, my team uses this framework all the time. I find it really interesting that, you know, because we make stuff at Steelcase, you know, we make chairs and tables and things that people use when they're working. And it's interesting that I feel like as we develop the stories around why these things exist, we always get into trouble when we haven't really thought through the why. Because it's very easy for us to say, well, what it is, you know, it's like, okay, it's a table, it's a chair, you know, and it's easy to talk about like, well, how does this thing work? And what's interesting about it? But it feels like whenever we stumble is when we haven't actually thought about, well, why did we make this thing? Like, why do we feel like the world needs another office chair? Another you know, chair, like what? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the way we get ourselves out of it is going back and thinking, well, okay, you know, what, what was our designer really thinking about when he or she saw this problem that they were trying to solve? So we find that there are a lot of really practical uses of this conversation, it's not just purely this kind of philosophical thing, but, but we've actually found it really helpful. Yeah, I mean, basically what you're touching on, what, what a why at its core, core essence is, is an origin story. And it can apply at a macro level for an organization, and it can apply at a micro level for a product. But right. everything that we make, everything we do need, needs to have a reason to exist. And it can't just be yeah. simply because there's a market opportunity or because customers want it, which we're not even 100% sure anyway. It has to be born out of some problem, some need, some, some personal experience. Those are always the best, most authentic things that exist in the market. So I want to talk a little bit about your new book, because when I heard you were writing a book about this notion about finite versus infinite and this uh, the idea of an infinite game, I have to admit it was a bit of a head scratcher for me. I was kind of like, what? What is this about? So can you just tell us what hit you that took you down this path? Yeah. So the original articulation, the original sort of accepted definition of what a finite game is, was actually introduced by a theologian by the name of James Carsey in the 1980s, in which he proposed this idea that if you have at least one competitor, you have a game. And there are two types of games. There are finite games and there are infinite games. A finite game is composed of uh, known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective. So baseball or football, we agree who the rules are, we play by the rules, and at the end we declare a winner and the game is over, right? There's a beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. An infinite game is defined as known and unknown players. The rules are changeable, and the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. Um, So there's no such thing as winning in an infinite game. So what happened to me when I, when I learned about this is I sort of took a look around the world and I realized how many infinite games we are always players within. There's no such thing as winning in marriage. 
Right. There's no such thing as winning in friendship. There's no such thing as winning in global politics. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. You have wins in business, but there's no winning business. We, we don't go declare a winner of business. And it's an infinite right. game. The players come and go. You go bankrupt, a new company is formed, but the game continues with you without you. And so it occurred to me that if we are players in these infinite games, the vast majority of leaders, if you just listen to their language, don't actually know the game that they're in. They talk about being number one, they talk about being mm -hmm. the best, and they talk about beating their competition, all of which are impossible. So if, what I learned is that if you play with a finite mindset, in other words, trying to be number one, be the best, or beat your competition, in an infinite game, there's a few very consistent and predictable outcomes, including the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. And so I realized if we're playing in these infinite games, and, and for too long we've been playing by the wrong rules, all of what we've seen in business, these theories of shareholder supremacy and using mass layoffs to balance the books on an annualized basis, and all of these accepted business practices that were really only popularized in the 80s and 90s, are actually incredibly bad for business and actually hurt trust and hurt cooperation in our companies and hurt innovation in our companies and hurt the long-term prospects for our companies. So I set out to try and understand what it means to be a leader in the infinite game. How do we actually lead for the game we're actually in? I'm dying to unpack this a little bit because as I started hearing about this, I was feeling like, I want to go and ask for my money back for my MBA because it feels Yeah, you should. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. It's been a few years. But it's like everything I learned kind of in that era are the things that you are saying, yeah, maybe not so much. So can I talk about this competition thing? Because, I mean, I've found in my career that the idea of having a competitor is – it can be pretty motivating. I mean, that you feel like, oh, man, you know, those guys – yeah, they, that, that was pretty good. You know, they did a good job. It drives me crazy. You know, what should we have done differently? So can you just talk a little bit about this whole competition thing? Like, because it just feels to me like that's just part of business. The problem with the word competitor is it sets up the wrong dynamic, right? So we have competitors in a, in a race, right? And, we, and, and the idea of competition is to win, and it is absolutely unbelievably motivating. But the problem is the metrics we choose and the timeframes we choose are arbitrary. Usually we choose a year because that's when we pay taxes, but it doesn't have to be. It could be six months, could be 12, uh, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, could be quarterly, right? And we get to choose the, the numbers as well. Is it revenues? Is it market share? Is it profitability? Is it EBITDA? Right. Is it earnings per share? I mean, you get to choose. Is it number of employees you have? Like you can choose any metric you want and claim that you're the winner. And so the problem is when we become too fixated on beating our competition, sometimes we make reactionary decisions. It doesn't actually advance innovation because we're looking to react to what they're doing rather than advance a cause or something bigger than ourselves. And if you are number one, then it puts you in an entirely defensive posture where you're now trying to protect your position, which definitely uh, hurts innovation. A healthier way to think about competition in the infinite game is to think of worthy rivalries. Another organization, another player, let's not refer to them as competitors, but another player that is in the game that is worthy of comparison, that is as good or better than you at some or many of the things that you do so that they become a benchmark. So you, you absolutely do push yourself to improve, but the only true competitor in an infinite game is yourself. How do you outdo yourselves? How do you make your products better this year than they were last year? 
How do you make your marketing mm-hmm. more effective this year than it was last year? How do you make your culture stronger this year than it was your, last year? And you use these worthy rivals to show that you still have a lot of work to do. Their strengths reveal to you your weaknesses. You said it yourself. They drive me crazy. That's because yeah. they're revealing to you your own weaknesses, which is frustrating. And I would rather leaders take all of that frustration, all of that energy, and instead of projecting it against another company, I would rather they focus that energy inwards on how we improve ourselves. So you said something else a minute ago, Simon, so I want to go back to um, this notion of a just cause, because that's, that's kind of foundational in your notion of the infinite game. Is that right? Correct. Can you talk about that? Because it feels a little bit like why to me. It feels like those ideas are linked. Um, they're definitely linked, but they're, they're different. A why comes from the past. It comes from where you're from. It is the foundation of the house. As individuals, our why is fully formed in our teenage years. It is the culmination of all of our upbringing and our experience. And it makes us, quote unquote, who we are. Right? Mm-hmm. As I said before, even about a company, it is ostensibly an origin story. It comes from the past. Whereas a just cause is about a view of the future. Once that foundation is built, the question is, what house will you build? And you can continue to build and improve that house forever, but the foundation will always remain the same. And so uh, a just cause is a vision of the future so far into the future, so idealized that we will never actually get there, but we will die trying, which is the point. A just cause is what gives our life and our work meaning. So the United States declared its just cause in the Declaration of Independence. Right. All men are created equal, endowed with certain unalienable rights, amongst which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we set out to build a nation that would embody these ideals. And we've seen the nation try. We've seen it with the abolition of slavery and, and women's suffrage and, and civil rights and gay rights. And we're still stumbling our way. We're still not there even with those things all the way. But you can see that the nation is trying to deliver on the ideal. And again, we will never get there, but we will die trying. That is the point. And organizations can have a just cause as well. It's sometimes called vision inside a company. Uh, The reason I threw out the word vision is because there's no standard definition of what it is. There's constant debate. What comes first, vision or mission? Who cares, you know? Some say it's brand, some say it's purpose. It, there's right. too much debate as to what the words are. Let's agree that it's a just cause, a cause so just that we would be willing to sacrifice to advance it. Yeah, so let's talk about this a little bit because this goes back to my MBA. Because I, you know, I always learned that the reason we exist is to return, we, the big we in terms of organizations in general, is the reason you exist in business is to return value to the shareholders. Like there are people who decided to invest in this enterprise, and we're successful when we make that happen. And, you know, I think about it now as, you know, a, a grown-up with a few investments of my own, and I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I, I would like those investments to do well. Um, I'd like to retire someday. So why is that not a just cause? So money is not a cause. Money is a result. Uh, it's, that's number one. Number two, that definition is largely based on the work of Milton Friedman, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, who in the 1970s theorized that the purpose of business is to maximize profits within the bounds of the rules, within Uh the bounds of the law, right? The problem is this definition was fully embraced in the 80s and 90s, 
Um, it was Milton's work and some others who also proposed the notion of shareholder supremacy, which was a request or a theory put forward by the shareholders themselves. And the problem is it takes a very, very simplistic view of business, that money is the only thing. But business is more dynamic than that. There are human beings involved. There are human beings in the making of the products, in the making of the company, in the buying of these things. And to simply maximize profit leads to some rather unethical behavior. I mean, Milton Friedman said to maximize profit within the bounds of the law. What about ethics? Ethics is a much higher standard than the law. We are inundated with companies to do, who do very uncomfortable things. And yet when they release their public statements, they say, we broke no laws, which incidentally, they didn't. That doesn't mean right. it's ethical. Yeah. And so the problem is, is there are two currencies in the infinite game, will and resources. In the finite game, the finite-minded players, there's only one currency, which is resources, maximize profit. Of course, money is important because without money, you don't stay in the game. But right. the infinite game considers the importance of human beings in the dynamic of, of business. We could talk about economics for a while, but frankly, I forgot a lot of what I learned back <laughs> back in my uh, studies um, because I didn't find it nearly as interesting as I did human behavior, which is how I landed here. So I, I want to talk about some of the human behavior in some of your other thoughts about the infinite game, this notion of courageous leaders and the notion about trusting teams. So, I mean, those things, when I see that at kind of a surface level, I go, well, yeah, of course you want courageous leaders, and of course you want teams to trust each other. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think most of us who have had any opportunity to lead, like, what does that mean to be a courageous leader versus just, you know, I'm achieving my goals? Um, So many of the pressures that we face at work every day are pushing us hard to play with a finite mindset. Many of our incentives at work are based on arbitrary financial goals set on arbitrary dates by people more senior than us in the organization. And there's this assumption, and that's all it is, is an assumption that some of the accepted business practices are actually the right way to run a business. And it's unbelievably difficult and takes unbelievable courage to say we reject Milton Friedman, we reject short-termism, we reject the notion that this is how business works and the purpose of business, and we're going to do, we're going to run our business the way we think a business should run. That having a just cause, having a reason that's bigger than making money, is actually a good way to run a business. In fact, it's a better way to run a business. And it's the courage to do the right thing. It's the courage to to march to the beat of your own drum. It's the courage to put your cause before everything else. It's the courage to 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 run a business highly ethically, even if it may cost money in the short term, because it's the right thing to do. And all of these things, companies that do do these things actually outperform the other companies over the course of time. You know, I've never met a CEO on the planet who says that, who's never said that their people aren't important. But then if you look at the way they actually make decisions and the way that they do embrace annualized layoffs to make the numbers, to meet their arbitrary projections, and which, by the way, some companies use layoffs even when they're profitable. It's just that they weren't as profitable as they predicted. So they see fit to use someone's uh, livelihood so that they can demonstrate that they made the arbitrary projection. There's something unbelievably uncomfortable and wrong with that. You know, this is not about trying to save a sinking ship. This is not about using layoffs when facing bankruptcy. You know, that's really uncomfortable. And so what trusting teams is, it's, it's good old-fashioned leadership, where we recognize that leadership is not about being in charge, but about taking care of those in our charge. 
Leadership is not an event. It's not a class. It is a skill and it is a lifestyle like being healthy. You don't go to the Mm -hmm. gym simply to make your weight goal and then stop going to the gym. Even if you hit your goal, you still have to keep going to the gym for the rest of your life. Parenting is a lifestyle. It's not, do you want to have children? It's, do you want the lifestyle of being a parent? And leadership is the same. It's all fine and good to say, yes, of course, it's important that our people trust each other. But the leaders are actually responsible for creating the environments in which trust can exist. And that idea is a lifestyle that too many leaders do not embrace. Let's talk about that a little bit, because one of the things that we're seeing, and I'd be curious if you're feeling this in some of your work as well, is we're seeing a real macro shift to team-based work because, you know, organizations are, you know, they do feel pressure from rivals, competition. They do feel pressure to continue to improve. And so team-based work really seems to be driving a lot of the behaviors that you, you can't achieve something really incredible with, you know, the lone innovator. I think most people have kind of given up on that myth. So they're really focused on the idea of teams coming together in order to do work, in order to create something that's novel, in order to, you know, generate an idea that didn't exist before. And that takes a lot of trust to be able to do that. At least in my experience, you know, feeling like you can be vulnerable, you know, to be able to put your ideas out there requires a tremendous amount of trust because a lot of times we tend to think about trust in terms of the people that we know well or the people that we like or, you know, what are some of those conditions that you see that organizations could be embracing in order to help build more trust? Um, So you know you have trusting teams when the people on the team feel psychologically safe enough to say, I made a mistake or I'm struggling at home Mm -hmm. and it's affecting my work, or you've promoted me to a position and I don't know what I'm doing, I need more training, or I'm scared, or I need help, without any fear of humiliation or retribution. And if you don't have trusting teams, if if a leader is not committed to creating that environment, what you do have is a group of people who are showing up to work every single day, lying, hiding, and faking. They're hiding their Mm -hmm. mistakes. They're pretending that they know how to do things that they don't. Um, They're never going to tell you that they need help. And over the course of time, things do break. Things will break because at the end of the day, we are social animals and we need each other. We're better together. In those conditions, that environment must be set by the leader, which means it's much like having children, which is you don't get to choose your children. And sometimes you don't get to choose your team. And regardless of who your children are and regardless of who your team is, you have to trust them and you have to love them. And we call you leader because you're the one who's willing to take the risk of trust first. It drives me nuts when Mm. leaders say, you have to earn my trust. No, it's the complete opposite. The people are not required to trust you. You are required to trust them and you must earn their trust. And when we operate in that way, the result is teamwork that is, is so powerful, so compelling. It's where we literally love our teammates. But but the notion of being willing to sacrifice for another, you know, to work late or to go on frequent business trips and miss our family or to turn down a better paying job somewhere else to stay here. They're not things I like, but they're things that Mm -hmm. feel worth it. And the reason they feel worth it, nobody, people follow their boss to a new job, you know, and when they, when they leave just for money, they so often want to come back. Yeah. We follow people. We're social animals. Like, why is this so complicated? 
you know? Um, and that's what I'm saying, that finite mindset neglects and ignores the overwhelming importance of the human that humanity in the equation of business. Yeah. How embarrassing that we live in a world that people are saying, you know, we work better in teams. No kidding. <laughs> Like, like 50,000 years of the success of the human animal has proved that out. Yeah. So I want to talk more about the environment in which teams exist. So like I know when you talk about the environment, you're talking at a much higher level. You're talking about like the culture of an organization. But we're always thinking about things in terms of kind of the physical environment, the physical cues and clues that workplaces leave for people because – you know, there is a body language to an organization when you walk into, you know, the place that you begin, before you've even interacted with people, the physical environment begins to tell you something about who they are and what they think and what they believe in. And so I'm curious if you could describe the perfect environment for an infinite game to exist. What would that be like for you? Is that a really hard question? <laughs> It's not, it's not a hard question. It's just an impossible one. You know, it's, that's like asking me, you know, what's the best way someone should dress or speak so that people will like them? It's like, well, it doesn't work that way. Focus groups do that. We do focus groups and we ask people, you know, so how should we act? How should we present ourselves so that you'll buy our products more? They've got the equation wrong. You know, that's like going to your friends and saying, how do you want me to dress? How do you want me to speak so you'll like me more? Our friends are going to look at us like we're crazy and say, just be yourself. I don't know. It's the same for companies, which is you have to know who you are. You have to know your origin story. You have to know your why. You have to know where you're going. And you do and say the things that reflect what you actually believe. Just like people want to be themselves, companies have to be themselves as well. The culture of the company is like the character of a person. And so the office environment, the physical environment, has to reflect their personality. I went to an office just recently, and it was the most generic, boring environment I've ever seen. You know, there was nothing mm -hmm. that reflected who they were, their personalities. I met them, they're lovely people, they're dynamic. And then they walked through their offices and it was like they just spent a ton of money on generic expensive furniture. And it was right. just like a, a, a TV studio office, you know, it was boring. But then you visit yeah. Southwest Airlines and it feels like what you would expect it to feel like. There's pictures of people on the wall. When you go into the, the executive offices, they look exactly like all the other offices. It's very egalitarian. And you're walking around and go, yeah, this is exactly what I expected. You know, you go visit Apple's headquarters, and it all looks like Apple products. The walls, the floors, there's no paint. There's no sheetrock. It's just steel, stone, and plain wood. That's all there is. All of the edges and corners are the exact same angle as your iPhone or your iPad. It's this, like a pillar has the same edges. A bench has the same edges. It, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it feels yeah. like exactly how you would expect it to feel. So Simon, I understand in your book you're going to be talking also about the need for flexibility. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I call it existential flexibility. It is the willingness to make a profound shift in strategy in order to advance your cause. This is not about the daily flexibilities of doing business. This is about the okay. willingness to, to completely change your business model because you see that the, the path you're on is no longer viable. So, for example, uh, why is it that a computer company came up with iTunes and not the music industry? Mm -hmm. Why is it a new startup came up with Netflix and not the movie industry or the TV industry? 
Why is it that Amazon invented Amazon as well as the e-reader? Why didn't publishers invent Amazon and the e-reader? Mm-hmm. Like the Kindle was invented not by publishers. Yeah, that's yeah. something screwed up. And that's because they were protecting their existing business model. And despite the fact that new technology was heading down, they, they didn't want to adapt because the offensive adaptation would have been too painful to their business models. And so they waited until they were forced to. My other favorite example is uh, when Netflix started and they had this new business model of subscription, even though streaming technology wasn't quite good enough yet, you could see it was coming down the pike. But they had this, this subscription model. You could have the DVDs for as long as you wanted, if you remember. The CEO at the time of Blockbuster, and Blockbuster was the 800-pound gorilla, went to see the board and said, we need to change the business model to include subscriptions. And the board said, no. Do you want to know why? Because the company made 12% of its, of its revenues from late fees. If you're not willing to blow up your own company, then the market will blow it right. up for you. I was just going to ask, is the, this notion of this kind of existential flexibility, is it really about avoiding disruption in some ways? It's, um, it's yeah, I, I would say it, it's the choice to disrupt yourself before the market disrupts you. I wish I had a couple more hours to talk with you because... I think your ideas are some really, really interesting things that are going to provoke a lot of thinking and a lot of conversations. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Simon Sinek, author of Start With Why and his new book, The Infinite Game. We'd like to remind you to rate and review the podcast and to let you know that if you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find other great episodes with people like Adam Grant or Beth Comstock in our 360 real-time archives and at steelcase.com slash podcasts.